So um, back in January of this year, I began to, to start to get really frustrated with church. Church general and this church. Not that we're doing anything wrong. And this went on for about six months and I got really disillusioned and dissatisfied. And, and, and what I failed to recognize in that was God was trying to show me something to speak to me about it. But I allowed it to bubble up in frustration, and for that I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. But Mark and I, you know, we kept talking and walking through that journey. But it got to a head at the end of June where I, I just thought, you know what, Every time I come here on a Sunday morning, I feel so much frustration. I'm just like that Peanuts character with a cloud over his head. And Joyce, every now and again, would recognize that and come and prophesy. And I'd be like, nah, I want to I I be in my misery. I, I want to be as uncomfortable as I can. But I got to the end of June, and I thought, I need to take some time out. And the wonderful thing about summer, when everyone's around, you can take a few weeks out, and nobody knows you're gone. So I wasn't here for six weeks, and at the end of it, Paul was like, oh, I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. You've been all right. And I thought, it worked. <laughs> but Mark knew about it. And I just thought, you know what, I have to get away because I know God wants to say something to me, and I need to step out of the environment to hear it. And, but I have to admit, I didn't have a lot of faith for what I felt God was going to say to me. Uh, me and church have always had a rocky relationship even though I've planted a couple, Esther and I have led them, um, we've been part of it for years. It hasn't been an easy relationship as far as uh, I'm concerned, and I suspect church towards me as well. Um, and I took, took some time out, and, and I just said, God, I want to find you again afresh in the world around me. I want to hear what you're saying. So the first Sunday that I bunked off church... Um, I went down to the marketplace. Beautiful sunny day. I had absolutely no idea where to go or what to do. So, Les will be proud of this. I thought, I'll go and have a hot dog. <laughs> that great spiritual principle of eating hot dogs. And I ended up chatting to this lady, and she told me about our life, about how her father had had three wives, and they all lived in the same house and how he died when she was young, and how she got married young, and came to England, and how her husband had died, and her children had left home. And she said, I feel so lost, I feel so lonely, I don't know who I am, I don't know why I'm here, I don't know what's the point in all of this. And this is like before I've even been asked what I like onions. <laughs> and I'm like, why is she sharing all this stuff with me? And then I, as I, I thought, you know what, I, I don't feel I should just walk away. So she had a little table and chairs. So I thought, I'll just sit down. And in between the customers over the next hour, she just kept pouring out all this angst. And as I listened to her, it was almost like she was holding up a mirror to me. And I thought, gosh, Lord, this is me. I feel lost. I feel lonely. I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know where I'm going. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't in depression but it was the reality that I just felt in this wilderness for, for a long, long time. And I'm like, God, whew, what do we do here? What do we, 
What's our message? What is it that we offer this lady? Where are all the Christians right now when she needs us? We're all in buildings miles away. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's something missing. Then, in the midst of all of this, I get invited to speak at one of the UK's biggest Christian conferences. Thousands of people. I'm not on the main stage in a little tent to the side. I haven't reached those dizzy heights yet. Uh, but Esther and I rocked up early, and we spent you know, the whole day listening to all these seminars uh, and, and speakers. And all I heard was a mixed message of law and grace. God loves you, but you need to get your act together. God loves you, but you need to get right with him. God loves you, but you need to try harder. And altar call after altar call was, come and repent. Come and get right with God. Come and try harder. And in the past, when I began to really awaken to grace a couple of years ago, that would have angered me. But it just broke my heart. As Esther and I looked at these people, it was like someone had taken the color switch and turned it down. All the color was drained from them. People just looked downtrodden, coming forward, altar call after altar call. And something was breaking inside me, going, God, something's not right here. Something needs to change. And then uh, back in, in, in around the August bank holiday, just after Esther and I had uh, went to a conference um, where some really big-name speakers were there, because uh, this is being taped, I'm not going to say the name of the conferences, but you can talk to me later if you want. And the same again, this complete mixed message of law and grace, that somehow God loves you, but you've got to try harder, you've got to work harder, you've got to, you've got to make yourself righteous. I remember on the first night, I think it was, um, this preacher gave uh, an altar call for healing. And there must have been about 2,000 people there, and about 1,800 people stood up to go forward for healing. Now, I'm sure those numbers aren't quite correct, but I'm a storyteller and I exaggerate everything, so, so bear with me. But it seemed like there was only maybe 150, 200 people sat down saying, I don't want healing. Now, I was one of those guys sat down, but I did need healing. But I'm too pig-headed sometimes to go forward. Esther's nodding, so <laughs> Joyce is nodding. <laughs> and I just thought, where's the power? Where's the power? Where's, where's the kingdom in all of this? Something's, something's missing and something's wrong and... and and I began to think, you know, as the church, have we got this right? Have we got our mission right? And I don't know if we have. And again, I'm not saying this church, I'm saying the church. I think for years, for centuries, our mission has been about, can we get bums on seats and can we get people to heaven? Yet Jesus came to bring heaven to earth. God made the earth and then he came down and lived in it. Jesus left heaven and brought heaven to earth. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven to earth. We've been given a mandate to bring heaven to earth, but we're too busy trying to get earth to heaven. And there's a mismatch. Have we got our message right? For years, the message of the church has been, you're wrong, you're not right, you're not good enough. God wants to punish you. And we any wonder why our message lacks power. And I think it's time the church began to re-grasp its message. The message is, God is not angry with you. God is not mad at you. He never has been, and he never will be. Hallelujah. 
And Jesus has made a way for you to be adopted. Come, be adopted, enjoy the Father. But I think our methods are wrong as well. Shortly after that, Esther and I uh, had the privilege of going to a church uh, which would be considered a flagship church in the UK. It's not in Cambridge. And it was slick. Man, it was slick. Every minute had almost been choreographed. So much so that we didn't need God. Certainly didn't need the Holy Spirit. We probably didn't even need the Word. Man, it was slick. And I just sat there and I just thought, where are you in this, Lord? And he's like, don't worry, I'm here. And I thought, where? What are our methods? We've relied on attraction. We've, we've relied on this, you come to us. But our methods should always be the same as Jesus, that we enter into the presence of God and we hear what he's saying and we obey and we move from that. And when we were at this conference, um, I began to cry out to God. I remember lying awake one morning, very early in the morning, as, as often I want to do, and was just like, God, we need to do something. Someone needs to do something. And you know, you ever had that moment when you realize you need to do something about it? But I'm like, God, that means church. I never noticed there was a grand piano up there. Wow. That means church, and that means getting more involved and doing stuff, and, and I don't want to do that. And I don't feel that I have the right to do that. And I don't feel that I carry that. And God's saying, I felt him say to me, you know, son, I am raising you up to do something about this, to speak. And I remember before we went away, Mark beginning to prophesy over me and Esther saying, I believe God is going to use you to create new forms of church, a new message to a younger people about what church is. And I'm like, oh, heck. Can't I have man of power, call to the nations? Couldn't I have something a little bit more like that? Couldn't I have wealth and health? And, and, but no, that's what my pastor gave me. And I lay there going, God, if this is you, you need to confirm this in such a way that there is no ambiguity. Because I'm sure as heck not committing to do church for the rest of my life, possibly go and plant one, do something unless you're with me. Because this, this is not a good idea. And, but the thing I've recognized is that when God reveals something to you out of Scripture, there, it always comes with an invitation to possess that which he's revealing to you. And that's taken me a long time to realize that, that when I get revelation, God's not just saying, oh, look at that. And I go, oh, that's cool. What he's saying is, son, that's for you. I want you to grab a hold of that. I want you to run with it. Well, what I'm about to say, please, um, I don't want to be misconstrued. It's not about me bragging. Well, it's slightly about me bragging. But it's not intended for that. It's intended to show you that, that, that you can have anything in the kingdom that you desire. So back in January, I watched this video of a guy called Leif Hetland. I don't know if you've heard of him. If you haven't, YouTube him the most phenomenal message about the three chairs, grace, identity, go and devour everything that he puts out. And he talked about Leif Hetland. Uh, L-E-I-F-H-E-T-L-A-N-D, Leif Hetland, the three chairs. You'll find him. Great guy. But he talks about how many years ago he was pastoring a church 
His goal was to get to 200. Every time he got close, people would die, students would leave, and he'd be like, oh, God. And he said, you need to break through. And he was in a meeting, and Randy Clark laid hands on him, and out he went in the spirit. And after that, his ministry was never the same. And he's led over a million Muslims to the Lord, and he gets invited to all of these councils of the tribes in Pakistan, and they call him the ambassador of love. I remember back in January saying, Lord, I want Randy Clark to pray for me. If Leif Hetland's able to get this, I'm able to get it because we're all your favorites. So if he gets it, I get it. I know this. I know this from my kids. Whatever I give to one, the other one knows they can get exactly the same. I don't know where that law comes from, but we all intuitively know it, don't we? Whatever the big brother or sister gets, we also get. And so I prayed this, and there I was at this meeting, and Randy Clark was there. We, we went to, I went deliberately because he was there, and he began to talk about uh, uh, an impartation and commissioning, and I'm like, Lord, I want that. And he said, and then he, he said, I'm about to give an altar call. He said, but I don't want anybody to come forward. I'm like, that's the weirdest altar call I've ever heard. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand there. And if God begins to move on you, tangibly, then you come forward. And so me being the upright citizen I am, I'm like, okay, I won't go forward. And I just stood there, and I'm aware everybody's breaking the rules and going forward. And I just felt the weight of God begin to fall on me, and I became like a yo-yo going up and down. I'm like, this is embarrassing. And so I came forward, and I'm shocked at the behavior of certain older women in the body of Christ. Les, it was like you in the scrum years ago. I got punched, I got kicked, I got barged out the way, and I'm just like, I was brought up, you don't knock old women out the way, but, but, and I, you know, and then so I end up miles away from the front, and I'm like, oh, God, no. And I just remember, I just thought, you know what, Lord, if this is really for me, you'll make it happen. And so he began to pray, and I'm rocking and rolling, and I'm up and down. I mean, it's unbelievable. And the guy next to me, every time I go down, he goes up. And we're like, and he's looking at me, I'm looking at him, and I'm just like, I, I don't know what's going on. And, and then suddenly Randy walks off the stage, moves people, and just grabs a hold of me and starts praying for me and praying for me. And, and I just felt wave after wave whoa, whoa, of the Holy Spirit on me just beginning to unlock stuff in me. And I just felt the Father's voice. I heard it just, just keeps telling me that I was his son, I was his son, I was his son. And then I'm like, God, if only Esther was stood next to me. And then Randy Clark goes back up on the stage and then he calls some dude out and then he's like, yeah, and there's a woman behind him and, you know, and... And that was Esther. So we got a double anointing. And I'm like, wow. And so, you know, that night I'm like, you know, I'm just, God, there's something you're doing something here. Well, the very next morning, um, the night, the, that night before, uh, this lady went to Bob and Eileen and said, could you take someone back to the airport the next day? And I saw Bob, he was like, yeah, but his shoulders dropped. He was looking really tired back then. And so I jumped up and I said to him, Bob, I'll help. I'll do it. Uh, I don't mind. I'll, I'll go and do it for you. And 
he went to this lady and he said, uh, this guy's from our church, he'd like to help. And she said, okay. She looked at me and I could tell she was like, mm, who are you? Um, and then I said, I'm at Mark and Cheryl's. And he, oh, yeah, yeah. And she said, okay, could you go to Manchester tomorrow and pick up Bill Johnson? So I'm like, I'm sure I could do that. <laughs> I couldn't sleep all night thinking, I'm, I'm sure this is a joke. You know, I'm going to get there and they'll be like, no, 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 could you, could you, take, could you take somebody else? And, um, and so, you know, I find myself the next morning picking up Bill from Manchester Airport and there's a, and there's traffic everywhere. And so for two and a three quarter hours, I get a one-to-one -one with this guy. Now, the bizarre thing was on the Wednesday morning, I'm after my prayer and everything, I'm watching this YouTube uh, video of Bill, as often many of us do. And I remember thinking, what if I met him, what would I ask him? And I'm sat there in the car going, go on, ask him, ask him, ask him. And I meant to come out with something really spiritual. And I'm like, Bill, can I ask you a question? He's like, yeah. And I went, what do you do in your spare time? I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> but we began to talk about that. And he gave me a word. And it has unlocked something in me. And at the same time, I've never laughed so much for years. He and I just laughing. Bear in mind, I'm driving down the M6. And he keeps getting his iPad out. And going, look, that's a picture of my car. And I'm like, yeah, it's really nice, Bill. <laughs> and he's like, and that's a picture of my fishing boat. And I'm like, yeah, that's a very nice, Bill. And I'm like, nah, steady. If I've got him in the car, nothing's going to happen to me today. So, But he unlocked that joy in me that I'd lost for a long, long time. I was a miserable dude for a long time, as many of you may testify to. And so... I think I've gone through a bit of a personal reformation. And, and in that time, I've been, there's been one scripture that keeps coming back to me time and time again, and that's Romans 8. Um, we don't have it to put up on there, but it's a very familiar scripture. In uh, the NIV, it says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. I think I prefer the New King James Version, which, if I'm quoting it correctly, says, for all creation groans in eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. And I began to cry out to God, and God began to say to me, before we can have a reformation of church again, before we can start to see new models of church that, that at its heart have... Have a, more, have a greater alignment with the mission and message and methods of Christ, we've got to go through personal reformation. And I'm like, God, what does that mean? And I was reminded of, uh, some of you will be familiar with, be, do, have, an expression. That it means that you, everything you have in your life is a result of the things you've done. And what you do creates the results. And so most of us try, if we want something different, we try to do something different. But the heart of it is that, that in order to, to get something to change on the outside, you've got to think differently. You've got to be different. You've got to have a different mindset. And I felt God say to me that before we can have a reformation of the church again, 
my people have to go through a reformation themselves. And I began to dive into that. And I felt God was saying is, look, my people have yet to discover who they really are. But a time is coming when they will and is happening. And when they do, they will become unstoppable. And this will be the church. This will be the people that all creation have been crying out for. So let's take a little bit of a, a look at that. All creation is groaning for you and I to figure out who we are and come and join the party in full expression of that. All of creation, every town, every city, every nation, every people, every tribe, every language, every creature, every square inch of land, all of this planet is crying out for you and I to figure out who it is we are and to come into agreement and alignment with what the Word of God says about us. We need to stop living small and acting small because we are the children of God. Oh, my goodness. But who are the children of God and why is that important? Well, if we look at verse 14 through to 17, uh, I'll read it out in the NIV. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So what does it mean to be a child of God? Because I think all of us would probably agree with that. Yeah, I'm a child of God. But I think we'd all agree, as we look across the world, creation is indeed groaning for you and I to be ambassadors of the kingdom. That wherever we, everywhere we go, we're able to release the kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're able to break every stronghold. We're able to right every wrong. We're able to, uh, to set people free from every bondage. And I don't think we've got there yet. So here's a few things that, that I feel God has shown me about this. So number one is that children of God are led by the Spirit. Now this does not just mean that we hear and obey. I think, I think as a church and as a group of people, we, we try to do that. But I think this speaks of coming into a place of relationship with God where we are utterly 100% dependent on Him and that we trust Him and we rest in Him. If we are led by the Spirit, we cease striving in our own efforts. We stop trying to please God. We stop trying to do stuff for God. We stop trying to perform for God. We stop trying to make things happen and we begin to perceive in the Spirit what He wants to do, and we begin to declare it out, and then we learn to rest in Him. And rest is hard work. I don't do it very well, but it is hard, hard work. We need to be led by the Spirit. Uh, number two, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Number two is, 
we are no longer slaves to fear. We sing it, but I'm not too sure if it's a full, we walk in the fullness and reality of that, do we? Now, I don't know about you, I'm not too keen on spiders. Have been known to make me jump, jump up on the settee. Are you laughing at me, Bethan? I bet, yeah, I bet your dad does it as well. <laughs> and we, we bizarrely have fears of public speaking. It's the, it's, it's, the number one, it's the number one fear in the world, allegedly. I think spiders are far more scary than, than talking to people. But I think the human race is utterly plagued by fear, from cradle to grave. We have that baby in the cot crying out in fear because it's hungry and lonely and can't yet rest in its mother's love knowing that every need will be taken care of. We see it in children in, in kindergarten, in primary school, walking in this fear, will I be accepted? Will I, will I fulfill my parents' expectations? Kids worrying about their exams. Uh, people worrying about, will they get a job? Will they get the right job? People worrying about, will they be able to feed their kids? Will they be able to pay their bills? What happens if I lose my job? What happens if I lose my home? What happens if I go into poverty? The human race is plagued by fear. We're worried about getting sick, about cancer, about dying. Yet the Spirit of God releases us so we are no longer slaves to fear. Because Jesus Christ on the cross took every sickness, every sin, every disease, and he broke that. He broke that. But often what we fail to understand is the reason why we struggle is because we still believe a lie. We believe the lie of the enemy that was first said in the Garden of Eden when he convinced Adam and Eve that you can be like God through your own efforts, which quickly becomes you can have the life that God offers through your own works, which moves from you can have to you can only have. And very quickly, we get caught in this lie that says, I have to take care of my own needs. And I can only meet those needs through my efforts. And we get caught in this lie. And I believe that's what the Bible calls the root of sin. But Jesus broke that. He came and he lived a life completely submitted and dependent on the Father. He trusted him 100% for every aspect of his life. And that's available to us. We no longer are slaves to fear. Fear is that thing that will stop you taking hold of what God has for you. It'll stop you getting out and dancing. It'll stop you standing up and giving a word. It'll stop you in your tracks. But you, as a child of God, are no longer a slave to fear. And when you feel that fear in your life, you need to speak that over you. I am no longer a slave to fear. I renounce that lie of the enemy that I can be like God through my own efforts. For goodness sake, we are his children. We carry his likeness and his image. We are the children of God. We don't have to try and become the children of God. Amen? Amen. Thanks, Liz. Where are we going now? Number three. We are adopted as sons. When we believe the gospel and 
receive what Jesus accomplished for us, we immediately became the children of God. But I, I read something earlier on the year that, that said, unless you understand what, how the Romans practiced adoption at the time, we wouldn't fully recognize what Paul was saying. I thought, that's interesting. Dived in a little bit. And it said that, that in Roman adoption, when you were adopted, you were placed as a child in a family. And the previous life was immediately eradicated. You were no longer this person. You were a new person with a new name and with full rights over that. And I was, I was thinking about this yesterday, and I'm reminded of my in-laws who had three kids of their own and then adopted uh, four children. An amazing thing to do. Wonderful, wonderful believers. But I noticed there were a number of things with the adopted children. That the first thing is when they became adopted, they took on the name of the family. They ceased being whatever they previously were, and then they became Harveys. It's like a clan. It's like a clan, the Harveys. And then, it, then they ceased being who they were previously, and then it became, they became as if the blood of Ray and June, as, as the Harveys. And then they became equal to all of their non-adopted uh, children. And it's interesting, this became as blood. It, honestly, the minute they became Harveys, it was like, if overnight, they all love watching old films and all talking all at the same time, so those of us that are non-Harveys can't listen. Unbelievable how adoption transformed their personalities overnight. But thirdly, they became the parent's legal responsibility at that point in time. Then they became the parent's financial responsibility at that time, and the adopted children became equal heirs in the family inheritance. And that's exactly what has happened to us when we became adopted as children of God. We ceased being an old creation and we became a new person with a new name. We became as the own blood of God himself. And that's amazing. And now we become his legal responsibility. Therefore, we never need to worry where anything's going to come from again because we are his legal responsibility and we know that God cannot change. I often wonder if he did, would this whole universe just instantly cease to be? God is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. So we are his legal responsibility. We are his financial responsibility. He will take care of us. And then we get to call, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We get to call God our Father. In the Old Testament, there are at least 12 names for God. Some people will say there's as many as 18 and 19 with variations. That's, that's a lot of names for one person. Yet Jesus only ever called God by one name, Father. And it was the most scandalous thing ever. It'd be like today in the House of Commons calling Theresa May babe. It's just, 
it's going to get you on the. It's going to get you on tomorrow's Daily Mail. And uh, I, where am I going with this nonsense? So, <laughs> Jesus got to call God Father. It was scandalous. Grace is scandalous. As a child, growing up, my father uh, was a very popular, uh, well-liked, and respected doctor, family doctor. And everywhere I went, people would stop him and call him Dr. Prem. No one really called him by his first name or, or anything like that, apart from those that, that really knew him. And, uh, and he was so popular, a bit like today, sometimes it would take weeks to get an appointment with him. But I knew and did many times that all I ever had to do was phone up the surgery. Didn't matter who answered the phone, I'd say, hello, this is Neil Prem. I'd like to speak to my father, please. And they would instantly put me through. Let that sink in for a moment. To you and everybody else, he was Dr. Prem, and you'd have to wait your turn. But for me, because I got to call him father, I had instant access. You no longer have to call God Jehovah, Yahweh. You don't have to call him Elohim. You get to call him Dad. And when you phone him up, Oh, this metaphor is going a little bit silly now, but when you phone up heaven, you just need to say, hey, this is Joyce. Can I speak to my dad, please? And they'll put you straight through. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children with God. Verse 16, I believe this means that we are, as children of God, we are bound to him forever. In all adoptions... The court, uh, or a legally appointed body, will issue a certificate or a legal document to prove that the adoption has taken place. So we hear of stories where uh, the original parents will come and contest it and say, I want that child back. But that certificate means that can never happen again. That if the state or the orphanage comes back and says, we want that baby back, you as the parents can hold that certificate up and go, no. This child has happened. It is legally irrevocable with that certificate. And that means the minute that certificate issued, that child is no longer under the control of the orphanage, of the foster parents, of the agency, of the state. That child ceases to be under control of the system and now becomes an heir and a family member in this family. And when you and I uh, believe the gospel, when we receive Christ for ourselves, we cease to be under the control of a system, the system of sin, the enemy system, and then we became, as the Spirit testifies to our spirit, it's a constant legal reminder that you and I are forever adopted by a heavenly Father that's irre irrevocably Legally irrevocable. Why am I banging on about that before so much? I don't know how many of you have, but I think statistically a, a good number in this room would have grown up not knowing if your father was for you, not knowing if he would take care of you, not knowing if he might abandon you, not knowing if he might suddenly decide you weren't good enough. And you lived in that constant fear, that push-pull. 
does he love me? Doesn't he love me? Will he provide? Will he give me what I need? Will he take care of my needs? What do I need to do? Who do I need to become? But the Holy Spirit testifies to your spirit, which is the equivalent of a legal document that says you have been irrevocably adopted as a child and as a son of God. It's a done deal. It can never happen. So we, again, don't need to be a slave to fear. We don't ever need to worry about performance Christianity. Just kick that in the butt and treat it with the contempt it deserved. Deserves. We're released from that now. We are the apple of our Father's eye. He doesn't want us slaving for Him. He doesn't want us doing the chores. He wants us round the table, cup of tea in one hand, bun in another, talking about us, Him, the family business, England's chances of success in the ashes. Oh, come on, Lord, please. He, that's how fathers and sons and daughters talk. Tell me what's on your heart, son. When Esther and I went to, to visit our youngest daughter at Liverpool, we hadn't seen her for weeks. First thing we want to know, what have you been doing? What's it like? Who are your friends? None of this. Are you working hard enough? Are you on track to get your grades? Our hearts were broken because we hadn't seen our beautiful daughter for weeks. We want to connect with her. And your heavenly father is no different at all. In fact, he's ten times worse. No, you don't get this, do you? The Bible says when God thinks of you, he rejoices over you with singing. Now, I've stood behind Les. I've heard him sing. Could be a little improvement in that, in that area. But, you know, when God thinks of you, he sings over you. He rejoices over you with singing. He counts the number of hairs on your head. Now, I'm making his job a little easier as the years go by. What does that speak of? That speaks of a father holding his infant, stroking their hair, blessing them, understanding everything about you. God says your name is written on the palms of his hand. In fact, the word is better, uh, means tattooed. And there's a couple of us dudes in here with, with plenty of ink on. We know the pain that we go through to get that on. It's a permanent thing. His, your name is tattooed on the palms of his hand. We need to understand that we've entered into this relationship of Father, which is just unbelievable. And the last couple here is verse 17. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God. Mark talked on this extensively on Rock Solid, and I believe he talked on this a lot at the beginning of the year and would do it much better justice than I would. But what I took away from that that, that that he talked about was that God created uh, almost a will and a, and a testament of what he wanted to happen in the event of his death. And when Jesus died on the cross, that will and that testament was put into force. Now, you and I know that when a parent or a loved one dies and their will gets read, the children gather around to hear what they had to say, uh, what's being left to them, um, and, and everything else. And so my understanding that, that when we became children of God, we became the heirs of God, which means because Jesus has died, that will and testament 
has been affected. I don't know what's happening over there, but I would really encourage you to grab a hold of this. Because what that means is, see, you are no longer sat there thinking, well, one day my parents will pass and then maybe I'll get left something. We need to recognize that that's, that's already happened for us as children of God. The will has been read. And what the will said is that my entire kingdom, everything that I own, everything that it contains is to be given to all of my children immediately, equally, and without finding fault. You have been given the keys to the kingdom. All authority in heaven and earth is now yours. But the trouble is, as children of God, we, we kind of mentally believe that, but we've yet to take hold of it. Because if we had, there'd be no sickness. There'd be no poverty. There'd be no wars, because we'd be dealing with that. So I'm not saying that as judgment, but just as observation. We need to take hold of this, that we are heirs of God. We have been given everything that he possessed is now ours. How on earth do we take hold of that? Well, I think we hear and obey. We dare to speak it out. But not only are we heirs of God, we are co-heirs with Christ. What does that mean? What's the difference? So here's what it means. Under Roman law, when you were adopted into a family, you got all the equal rights of the firstborn. So in my Indian heritage, all of the wealth of the family goes to the eldest son. So imagine in my family, all of the wealth comes to me, but my parents then adopted someone that child now has equal rights with me. What does that mean? That means that you get the same rights as Jesus. Whatever Jesus had access to, you get access to. You get unfettered access to the Father. You get to live under an open heaven. Whatever he did, you get to do. You get to uh, raise the dead. You get to heal the sick. You get to cast out the demons. You get to tell the religious people exactly what you think of them. You get to walk... Anyone for walking on water? If I say one, Les? Yeah. Sam's up for that. I, I reckon you could do that, Sam. <laughs> this is what it means to be co-heirs. When we think of the parable of the prodigal son, why do we think the older brother was so angry? I'll tell you why he was so angry. Because the, the son, the younger brother, had had his inheritance, went off. And when he came back, and when he knew the ring had gone back on the, his brother's finger, he knew that meant his younger brother had been readopted in the family, which meant there was only 50% of the father's estate, and now this brother, who'd wasted half of it, now got equal rights to him. So if the estate was worth a million, originally it was now worth half a million, this younger brother's now got equal rights to quarter of a million. The elder brother is somewhat... The Americans have a much better word for anger than we do, but apparently it's not nice to use it in church. But <laughs> Thank you, Joyce. <laughs> if you're wondering what that is, see Joyce afterwards. <laughs> She'll have that word for you. But we need to understand that not, we have full access to the kingdom, but we have equal rights to Jesus. And see, the thing is, when 
the church of Jesus Christ gets a hold of this. When we can look in the mirror and go, oh my goodness, I'm led by the Spirit. I'm adopted. I'm a son. I'm a co-heir. I'm I'm an heir of God. When we know this here, when we know this here, and we believe it, that we walk in it, oh my goodness, we will become we will become the church that the world has been crying out for. We will become the church that the church has been crying out for. We will become the people that will begin to usher in uh, the kingdom of God. We will be that group of people that will take the gospel of the kingdom to every nation. But you are that person. You are. So the question I have for you this morning is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe you are worthy of that? Well, I'm just going to end on one last scripture. Isaiah uh, 60. Very familiar. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Church, This is our time to arise. What does that word mean? When Jesus raised the dead girl to life, he said, arise. And he's saying it to his people now, arise. We've been praying for years for revival, thinking it meant that we could get to do nothing and the world would run into our buildings. But what it actually means is to bring back from the dead. So when we've been crying, Lord, send your revival, what he was saying, what we were crying out for there was, God, we are dead, we're on life support, come and bring us back to life again. And God is saying, arise, my people, arise. This is your time, he's breathing life into every one of us. Shine. We are called to be the reflection of the person and presence of God. Oh my goodness, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But when we get a hold of the revelation that we are children of God and we live and we walk in it, we will begin to shine like the stars. We will begin to become the reflection of the face and the person and the nature of God. God is saying, arise, let it come forth for your light has come. There is an anointing that's coming on the church and has already come that is beginning to unveil this in us. And God is saying, if I am showing you this, it's because it's yours to take hold of. Amen? This is a tough one, isn't it? Some of you look fully convinced. Some of you look less than convinced. But that's okay. Could you come and do your thing for me, please?